Okay, so today is going to be the last sermon in this series that I've been doing uh, on the prodigal son story that's found in, in chapter 15 of Luke. And as I have mentioned in all of these sermons, this, this series was largely um, basically taken from or, in, or uh, encouraged by a book that Henry Nouwen wrote uh, on the prodigal son story, but also on his uh, experience with the uh, painting that is on my right, which is a painting that Rembrandt did of the story, uh, in 1669, as I mentioned the first week, it was very likely one of the very last, if not the last painting that Rembrandt, Rembrandt ever did. It was because um, he died in 1669. Uh, and so Nouwen had, um, saw a, a poster of the painting, eventually got to see the real thing, which is at the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, spent some hours just really viewing it. And so a lot of these are, are his, kind of as he thought about not only the painting, but the story that the painting tells. Um, and so a lot of the book, really a good, the whole book is about that. And so what we've done is, so far in the series, the very first week, we, we've, we've kind of pieced this together. We've taken parts of the story, because a lot of times there's a lot going on in this particular story. And so... Very first week, we just look, all we looked at was the, the, the younger son's leaving and kind of what that looked like and what that, what that tells us. And then the second week, we looked at the younger son's return and, and what, whatever lessons that we could learn from that. Two weeks ago, uh, I talked about the older son's leaving. And, and, that, um, and that's kind of interesting because... Physically, the, the older son never left, right? He was at home. But in fact, we, we sort of acknowledge the idea that it's possible to leave home emotionally, even though we may remain physically, okay? And now, although ultimately, the story doesn't tell us what happened. You know, we like things that resolve themselves, and this story doesn't. You know, we all we know is sort of at the very end, the father is encouraging the older son to come in and join the party. And we don't know whether he did or not. Um, but I think it's important uh, that we, we sort of explore this because honestly, implicitly, implicit in the story of the older son is that there's always a possibility to return home. That that is always a possibility to us. Regardless of the reason you left. Okay. And so, to put it another way, there's a way that the, for the older son to return. And that's going to be the focus of what we're talking about today. So, um, with that in mind, we're going to just look at the last part of the story, uh, which is the father's response to the elder son. And it's found in uh, verses 28, and then we'll skip 29 and 30, because that's the son's response, and then jump to 31 and 32. So 28 says, The older son became angry and refused to go in and celebrate. So his father came out and pleaded with him, Come and enjoy the feast with us. Then, if you remember, this is the part where the older son you know, gets all disgusted and up in arms and says, well, You never even gave me a goat that I could celebrate with my friends, and yet this wayward brother gets all the, you know, the glory and so forth. 
The father's response then begins in verse 31 where he says, The father said, My son, you are always with me by my side. Everything I have is yours to enjoy. It is only right to celebrate like this and be overjoyed because this brother of yours was once dead and gone, but now he's alive and back with us again. He was lost and now he is found. And it's interesting because I hadn't really noticed it before, but if you recall in the older son's response, he refers to his brother as this son of yours. Right? Sort of like, I don't have anything to do with him. And in, in the father's response back to the son, he calls him this brother of yours, as if sort of saying, yeah, there is a connection here that you can't just overlook when it's convenient. So the question that's kind of before us would be, well, how does the older son return home? What would that look like? So I think there's a couple of things that we can kind of pull out, of, out from this. The first one is that the older son must realize that the father's love is equal. Okay, The father not only wants the younger son back, he wants the older son to come back too. And likewise, the elder son needs to be found and led back into the house of joy. And so the question... In, in looking at the story is, well, is he going to respond to his father's plea or is he going to remain stuck in the bitterness that he's obviously in based on what he says? And as we've said before in the series, the father's love does not force itself on the beloved. I mean, God wants to heal us of all the inner darkness that we have, but we're still free to make our own choices. We can stay in the darkness, or we can choose to step into the light of God's love. God is there. God's light is there. God's forgiveness is there. God's boundless love is there. What's so clear is that God is always there, always ready to give and to forgive, absolutely independent of our response. God's love does not depend on our repentance or our inner or outer changes. Whether you are the younger son or whether you see yourself as the older son, God's only desire is to bring you home. Arthur Freeman writes this about this particular parable. He says, The father loves each son and gives each the freedom to be what he can, but he cannot give them the freedom that they will not take, give them freedom they will not take or adequately understand. The father seems to realize beyond the customs of his society the need of his sons to be themselves, but he also knows their need for his love and a home. How the stories will be completed is up to them. The fact that the parable is not completed makes it certain that the Father's love is not dependent upon the appropriate completion of the story. The Father's love is only dependent on himself and remains part of his character. Okay, so it doesn't matter what the son's response is. God's love 
the Father's love is always there. He is always ready to welcome us back. And I think for us personally, this, this possible return of the elder son is really of crucial importance. Because there is an awful lot of us, uh, uh, there is much in us of the group of which Jesus is most critical. And that's the Pharisees and the scribes. See, like, like them, we have, to some extent, studied the scriptures. We have learned about the laws. We've perhaps even presented ourselves on occasion as an authority in religious matters. We've been critical of many types of behavior and often passed judgment on others. So when Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, we have to listen with the awareness that we are the closest to those who elicited the story from him with the remark, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Just as a little side note, I'm reading a book right now called Unoffendable by an author named Brant Hansen. And the book has a fascinating thesis. He says, and he's researched this in scripture, that we are not entitled to be angry and we can choose to be unoffendable. And that's a radical thought. He takes it further. He was like, what if Christians were known as a people who could not be offended? Anyway, maybe a sermon series later on about that. So let's get back to this. So is there any chance for us to return to the Father and feel welcome in his home? Or are we so ensnared in our own self-righteous complaints that we're doomed against our own desire to remain outside of the house, wallowing in our own anger and our resentment? The story of the elder son <clears throat> makes it very plain that God does not love the younger son more than he loves the elder son. In the story, the father goes out to the elder son just as he did to the younger. He urges him to come in, and he says, My son, you are always with me, and all I have is yours. Those are words that we have got to pay attention to and we have got to allow them to penetrate to the very center of ourselves. God calls each one of us my son. The Greek word that Luke uses in this particular occasion is technon, which is an affectionate form of address and literally translated, it's child. And the affectionate approach that the father is taking here becomes even clearer in the words that follow that. The harsh and the bitter reproaches of the son. And if you remember from a couple of weeks ago in the, in the section where the son, in the verses that we didn't read today, the son comes down pretty hard on the father. Basically saying, you know, you're an idiot for welcoming this brother of mine back. 
but there's no recrimination. There's no accusation. The father does not defend himself or even comment on the elder son's behavior. The father moves directly beyond all evaluation to stress his intimate relationship with his son when he says, you are always with me. In some respects, the father is unoffendable. The father's declaration of unqualified love eliminates any possibility <clears throat> excuse me, that the younger son is loved more than the older. The older son has never left the house. The father has shared everything with him. He's made him a part of his daily life, keeping nothing from him. All I have is yours, he says. There could be no clearer statement of the father's unlimited love for his son. Thus, the Father's unreserved, unlimited love is offered wholly and equally to both sons. Okay. Second, the older son must let go of rivalry. The joy uh, at the dramatic return of the younger son uh, really in no way means that the elder son was less loved, less appreciated, less favored. The Father doesn't compare the two. He loves them both with a complete love, uh, and he expresses that love according to each one's individual journey. He knows them both intimately, as a father would his sons. He understands their highly unique gifts and shortcomings. He sees with love the passion that the younger son has, even when the passion isn't regulated by obedience. And with the very same love, he sees the obedience of the elder son, even when it's not vitalized by any passion. With either son, there's no thoughts of better or worse, more or less. No measuring stick is applied to either one. The father responds to both according to their uniqueness. The return of the younger son makes him call for this joyful celebration. The return of the elder son coming in from the field makes him extend an invitation to fully participate in the joy of the family. You recall that Jesus says, in, in the house of my father there are many places to live. Each child of God has his or her own unique place, all of them places of God. And because of that, we have got to let go of all comparison, all rivalry, competition, and just surrender to the love of the Father. Now this requires a leap of faith, because we have very, very little experience of non-comparing love. And most of us don't even know the healing power of such a love. And as long as we're going to stay outside in the darkness, we can only um, remain in that resentful complaint that results from these comparisons that we're making. See, outside of the light, the younger brother we have seems to be more loved than the father than we are. 
And in fact, outside of the light, we can't even see him as our own brother. Remember what he said? This son of yours. He's not my brother. God is urging us to come home, to enter into his light, and to discover that in God all people are uniquely and completely loved. In the light of God, I can finally see my neighbor is my brother, is the one who belongs to God as much as I do. But outside of God's house, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, lovers and friends, become rivals and even enemies in some cases, each perpetually plagued by jealousies, suspicions, and resentments. It's not surprising that in his anger, the elder son complains to his father, you never offered me so much as a goat for me to celebrate with my friends. But for this son of yours, when he comes back after swallowing up your property, he and his loose women, you kill the calf we've been fattening. Those are words that reveal how deeply hurt this man was. His self-esteem is painfully wounded by his father's joy. And his own anger prevents him from accepting this returning scoundrel as his brother. As I mentioned, with the words, this son of yours, he distances himself from his brother as well as from his father. He looks at the two of them almost as aliens who've lost all sense of reality who engage in this relationship that's completely inappropriate considering the true facts of the prodigal's life. Right? He had no grid at all. You know, in the first place, as we talked about on the very first week of the series, you know, for this younger son to essentially say to the father, I wish you were dead. Can I just have my money now? And I'm just going to go on my little way. Right? So that was a huge offense in the first place that I'm sure the older son had, you know, was like freaking out about. Then, for the father, who had every right to stone this other brother to death when he returned, to open his arms and welcome him in and lavish him with gifts and give him back his sonship, the, you know, the brother is just like, I don't, this is like nuts. And so he, he, he just can't kind of figure all this out. I mean, so he's essentially sort of taking the position that I just, I just don't have a brother anymore, and I really don't have a father either. They've both become like complete strangers to him. His brother, who he sees as a sinner, he now looks down on with disdain. His father, who he now sees as a slave owner, he looks up at with fear. And so we can see just exactly how lost this elder son has gotten. He's become a foreigner in his own house. There's no communion anymore amongst the family. Every relationship he has is in some way pervaded by the darkness. To, to be afraid 
and to show disdain. Those are his choices. To suffer submission or to enforce control. To be an oppressor or to be a victim. See, these are the choices that one has when you're outside the light. Sins can't be confessed. Forgiveness can't be received. Mutuality of love cannot exist. True communion has become impossible. Just a guess, but I'd be willing to bet that to some extent or another that you know the pain of this predicament yourself. Because when you're in it, everything sort of loses its spontaneity. Everything becomes suspect, self-conscious, calculated, full of second-guessing. There's no longer any trust. Every little move calls for some counter-move. Every little remark that you hear begs for an analysis. Even the smallest gesture has got to be evaluated in some way. This is the pathology of the darkness. Is there a way out? Yeah. But it often seems that the more we try to distinguish ourselves from the darkness, the darker it becomes. We need light, but that light has to conquer our darkness. And we can't bring that about in ourselves. By ourself, we can't leave the land of anger. By ourself, we cannot bring ourselves home, nor can we create communion on our own. We can desire it, we can hope for it, we can wait for it, and yes, we can pray for it. But our true freedom, we cannot fabricate for ourselves. That must be given to us. We are lost and we must be found and brought home by the shepherd who goes out to us. The story of the prodigal son is the story of a God who goes searching for us and doesn't rest until he's found us. He urges and he pleads. He begs us to stop clinging to the powers of death and to let ourselves be embraced by arms that will carry us to a place where we can find the life that we most deserve. But in order to find it, we have to turn from a false dependence on the world of materiality that cannot give us all we need to a true dependence on the Divine Father who says, you are with me always, and all I have is yours. We must also turn from our complaining, comparing, resentful self to our true self that is free to both give and receive love. And even though there have been and undoubtedly will continue to be many setbacks, it will bring you to the beginning of the freedom to live your own life and die your own death. The return allows us to let our Heavenly Father be the God whose unlimited, unconditional love melts away all resentments and anger and makes us free to love beyond the need to please or find approval. And then finally, 
The older son must embrace trust and gratitude. Now this personal experience of the return of the elder son in us may offer some hope to people who are caught in the resentment that is this bitter fruit of their need to please. And all of us someday are going to have to deal with the elder son or daughter in us. So the question before us is like, what, what, what do we do? What can we do to make the return possible? And although it is absolutely true that God runs out to us and finds us and is wanting to bring us home, it's incumbent upon us that we've got to not only recognize that we're lost, but also be prepared to be found and brought home. We can't do that by just waiting and being passive about it. And as I said, although we are incapable of liberating ourselves from our frozen anger, we can allow ourselves to be found by God and healed by his love through the concrete and daily practice of trust and gratitude. Trust and gratitude are the disciplines for the conversion, for the return of the elder son. See, without trust, we can't let ourselves be found. Trust is that deep inner conviction that the Father really wants us to come home. And as long as we continue to doubt that we're really worth finding, and we put ourselves down as being less loved than the younger son, then we're not going to be able to be found. We have to keep saying to ourselves, God is looking for me. He will go anywhere to find me. He loves me, he wants me home, and he cannot rest unless he has me with him. Now there's a very strong, dark voice in us that says, God's not really interested in you. He actually prefers the repentant sinner who comes home after all his wild escapades. He doesn't pay attention to you. You've never really left the house. He just has taken you for granted. You're not his favorite son. You shouldn't expect him to give you what you really want. Sound familiar? At times the dark voice is so strong that we need enormous spiritual energy to really trust that the father wants us home as much as he wants the younger son home. It requires a lot of discipline to step over that chronic complaint that is running through us all the time and to think and speak and act with the conviction that we are being sought and will be found. If you don't have that kind of discipline, then you're going to become prey to this self-perpetuating hopelessness. If you're going to continue telling yourselves that you're not important enough to be found, then you're going to amplify that self-complaint to the point that you will be totally deaf to the voice that's calling you. And at some point, 
you have got to totally disown that self-rejecting voice and claim the truth that God does indeed want to embrace you as much as he does your wayward brothers and sisters. And in order to prevail, this trust has got to be even deeper than the sense of lostness that you may feel. Jesus expressed its radicalness when he says, everything you ask and pray for, trust that you have it already and it will be yours. Living in this radical trust will open the way for God to realize our deepest desires. But along with that trust, there has to be something else. There has to be gratitude. And gratitude is the opposite of resentment. Resentment and gratitude can't coexist. Because resentment blocks the perception and the experience of life as a gift. Our resentment tells us that we don't receive what we deserve. And it always manifests itself as envy. Gratitude, however, goes beyond this mine and thine and claims the truth that all of life is a pure gift. Now maybe in the past you always thought of gratitude kind of as a, like a spontaneous response to the awareness of gifts that you've received. But now you need to realize that gratitude can also be lived as a discipline. And the discipline of gratitude is the explicit effort to acknowledge that all we are and have is given to us as a gift of love, a gift that is to be celebrated with joy. Not joy, but joy. <laughs> now, you can celebrate joy with joy, okay, just to be clear, which would be fun, I think, but... Sorry, I happened to look at her right as I'm saying that, and that's what flew into my head. I know, sometimes I need an editor. Um, gratitude as a discipline involves a conscious choice, right? You can choose to be grateful even when your emotions and your feelings are still steeped in hurt and resentment. It's amazing if you really stop and pay attention how many occasions present themselves in which you can choose to be grateful about something instead of being a complainer about something. We can choose to be grateful when we're criticized, even if our heart is still going to respond with bitterness. We can choose to speak about goodness and beauty, even when our inner eye still looks for someone to accuse or something to call ugly. We can choose to listen to the voices that forgive and to look at the faces that smile even while we're still hearing words of revenge and seeing grimaces of hatred. There's always a choice between resentment and gratitude because God has appeared in our darkness. He urges us to come home and has declared in a voice that is filled with affection you are with me always, and all I have is yours. Indeed, 
we can choose to dwell in the darkness in which we stand, we point to those who seem to be better off than we are, lament about the many misfortunes that have plagued us, and thereby wrap ourselves up in our resentment. But you don't have to do that. There's an option in which you can look into the eyes of the one who came out to search for you and see therein that all we are and all we have is a pure gift calling for gratitude. Now I will tell you, the choice for gratitude rarely comes without some real effort. But each time we make it, the next choice is a little bit easier and a little bit freer and it has a little bit less self-consciousness surrounding it. Because every time you acknowledge one gift, that acknowledgement is going to reveal another one. And then another. And then another. Until even the most normal, obvious, and seemingly mundane event or encounter proves to be filled with grace. There's an Estonian proverb that says, who does not thank for little will not thank for much. Acts of gratitude make one grateful because step by step they reveal that everything is grace. It's all grace. Both trust and gratitude require the courage to take risks because distrust and resentment and their need to keep their claim on me are going to keep warning me about how dangerous it is to let go of all the careful calculations and guarded predictions that I have going around in me. And at some point, you just have to take that leap of faith and to let trust and gratitude have a chance. Maybe it means writing a gentle letter to someone who will not forgive you. Maybe it means making a call to someone who has openly and repeatedly rejected you. Maybe it means speaking a word of healing to someone who can't do the same to you. There you have it. Realize the Father's love is equal. Reject rivalry. And embrace trust and gratitude. Doing these things is not easy. I guess sort of like old age, Christianity is not for sissies either. Doing these things is hard because it always means loving without expecting to be loved in return. It means giving without expecting to receive something. It means inviting without hoping to be invited. It means holding without asking to be held. 
every time that we make even a small step in that direction, you catch a glimpse of the one who runs out to us and invites us into his joy. The joy in which we not only find our own self, but also our brothers and sisters as well. The leap of faith that allows the elder son to return home reveals the God who searches for us, burning with desire to take away all our resentments and our complaints, and to let us sit at his side at the heavenly banquet. Thanks be to God, our Father, the maker of heaven and earth. Amen. going to be, just ask you to be quiet for just a moment. Just going to close your eyes. Just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. See if we get a sense of what he may want to do the rest of the time we have. So come Holy Spirit, we ask for an increase of your manifest presence among us.